0: We'll go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're in the book of Daniel. Um, this is our final week in our sermon series on uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. And uh, we're going to jump right in with verse 1. So Daniel 9.1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, so this is Babylon, by the way, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So stop right there. It probably doesn't really... Uh, isn't really compelling. It probably doesn't jump off the page. It's like, oh my goodness, that's so fascinating. Uh, But let me just frame this for you. So Daniel and these Jewish people have been in exile in Babylon for, and and Daniel is a book about exile in Babylon, uh, for over 60 years. For over 60 years. And what he's saying is that Daniel, this Jewish man in exile in Babylon, has come upon the writing of another Jewish prophet named Jeremiah. There's a book in the Old Testament named Jeremiah. He's talking about Jeremiah. Uh, He's come across Jeremiah's writings and he finds a thing where it says Jerusalem's desolations, meaning the exile of the Jewish people, will last for 70 years. So Daniel, a man who was taken into exile in his teens, has now been in exile for 60 years. And he goes, wait a second. This could be coming to an end. This could be coming to a close. We could be on the verge in the next few years of going home, of leaving exile. And so Daniel starts to imagine, he starts to dream, what might life look like on the other side of exile How might we prepare ourselves now for the other side of this hard thing that we've been going through um, as, as an entire people group? How might we prepare for it? And I think it's an incredibly relevant question. I think we ask these questions all the time. When when you're going through something personal, whether it be big or small, when you have hard news to digest or you're going through a struggle or even as we're thinking about two years in a global pandemic, what does the other side look like? How do we get there? What would it look like to live on the other side of this thing that we've been wrestling with and struggling with? What does it look like to live on the other side. And the thing that I want you to see in Daniel this morning is that there's something that God wants to do in you that will prepare you for what's next. That there's something God wants to do in you that will prepare you for what's next. That what you're going through, God will use that to prepare you for what is ahead in your journey. And so I think if we're not careful, we might imagine that our spiritual lives uh, are a bit, a bit like retirement. And what I mean by that is this, that, that we are go through some struggles, life might be hard, but one day, one day, it'll all be worth it when we get on the other side of the hard thing and we got that vacation home and we play 18 holes of golf a day and we just relax. The struggle's over, life is easy, everything is good now. Now, I'm not against vacation homes and retirement and 18 holes of golf. It sounds terrific right now. Um, Even though the sun is terribly warm, it's still cold out. All that sounds wonderful. What I'm saying is that sometimes we unintentionally project this onto the Christian life, that, that life might be hard now, but if we just keep our nose down and get through it, one day we'll be on the other side of it and it'll all be downhill. It'll all be great So we don't have to worry about much now. We just have to keep going, keep grinding. It'll be hard, but one day God will do something awesome for us and everything on the other side will just be great. But here's the thing. When Daniel hears, hey, there's a day coming soon where you'll be on the other side of this really hard thing, he doesn't start dreaming about like, oh, how awesome will that be? How great will it be? We'll be on the other side of exile and everything will just be perfect. That's not at all what he does. Instead, what he does is he starts to examine what is it that's happened in us that we don't want to miss a chance to examine before we get to the other side. Meaning, might we have gone through this entire thing for 60, 70 years and we've learned nothing? What should we be learning? What should we take away? What should we be looking at inside of us? What needs to change? What needs to be different about us before we get to the other side so that we don't fall back into the same patterns that got us here in the first place? Pick back up in verse 3. In verse 3, this is what Daniel says. Then... I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, "O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So stop right there. If you've ever rehabbed an injury, say you've hurt yourself um, in a work incident or in sports, if you've ever gone through physical therapy to rehab an injury, you know that the road to recovery is not a pain-free experience. That to face the reality of needing to be rehabilitated requires enduring a lot of pain the way forward, the way to healing is through pain. It's not through ignoring it. It's not through trying to get around it or just sitting around dreaming about what life might be like when the pain is gone. In fact, it was the American poet Robert Frost who said, the only way out is through. And to get to the other side of exile, God's people have to go through what led them into exile in the first place. They cannot ignore their sin and their brokenness. They cannot ignore it. It has to be dealt with head on. So we see Daniel, we see him fast, we see him put on sackcloth and ashes. These These are symbols of mourning and grieving, not exactly what you'd expect from somebody that just stumbled upon good news. And not only does he grieve, but he elaborately confesses all of their sins. In fact, between verses 5 and 15, he uses 10 different Hebrew expressions for their sins. Track them with me. They have sinned. They have done wrong. They have acted wickedly. They have not listened. They have committed treachery. They have rebelled. They have not obeyed. They have transgressed. They have turned aside. They have not entreated. They have not sought. 10 different Hebrew expressions, all to say, we failed. We failed. And he's asking the question have we even learned our lesson? Or will we just get out of this and then double down? Will we just live in the same old failures? When we get on the other side of this, have we dealt with what's going on in us or will we just keep going back to the same mess over and over and over again? I know many of us could say amen to that. Going back to the same mess over and over again. What's the the way forward? Pick back up in verse 16. We'll see that the way out is the way through as we grow in dependence upon God. Pick back up in verse 16. It says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, because of who you are and what you've done, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Okay, he's going to talk about Jerusalem. He's talking about the Jewish people. Your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. They've become a joke. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Not because we've done anything special, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Because your name is attached to us. Pause there. It's... It's so hard not to be thinking about what's happening on the other side of the world right now, what's happening in Ukraine. It's, it's something that's, um, it's just an atrocity that we're all witnessing, and I, I saw someone post weeks ago as this became inevitable that, that this will be the first uh, war that's played out fully on social media. And, uh, and it's been fascinating to watch, I don't know if you've been seeing on uh, Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook, but, but lots of videos of different things happening in Ukraine. But one of the things that I keep seeing um, lots of different angles on is, are Christians praying in public, Christians gathering in public spaces in Kiev and other places in Ukraine and praying together, joining together in prayer. And, and it's been fascinating to watch because, I mean, obviously, we don't want to trivialize What they're going through. It's an an atrocity. It's it's severe. It's harsh. It is unimaginable suffering and terror and fear. And and yet, what's incredibly fascinating is that these Christians, as the world is watching, are being sustained by their faith. Not that God is going to yank them out of the situation but that God is there with them no matter what they're going through. That God is with them, that even in their darkest moments, even as they face the worst that humanity can do to each other, that God has not abandoned them. They don't walk away from their faith. They believe their faith is the only thing that will get them through through it, come what may. And I, I believe they are being transformed, not out of their suffering, but in the midst of their suffering. And what the Jewish people understand in this text is that the way through is with God, that he will transform them as they own up to what they are going through rather than waiting until everything is easier and everything is calmer. God wants to transform them right where they are. See, the nation of Israel had a relationship with God, a special relationship known as a covenant and there were different types of covenants in the ancient world, but one type of covenant was where a bigger, stronger nation made a covenant to work with and protect a smaller, more, uh, less significant nation, right? So God was the bigger nation, Israel was the smaller nation, and they had covenanted together. And to maintain the covenant, Israel had to be obedient. But if Israel was disobedient to the rules of the covenant, that meant that God no longer had to protect them. And so they end up in Babylonian exile because they're disobedient, not once, not twice, over decades, maybe centuries, they're disobedient to God. And finally God goes, I cannot be attached to this as the covenant keeper. You've broken the covenant. You will suffer the consequences of breaking the covenant. So they find themselves in exile. But the thing was, even though they had broken the covenant, God did not terminate the covenant. And God gave them one way back To cast themselves upon his mercy. To say, we've made a mistake, God. And Daniel says 10 different ways, we've made a mistake. And then what does he do? He casts himself upon God's mercy. That's what he does. Because here's what Daniel knows, that God is faithful to his word. The Israelites might be unfaithful. We might be unfaithful. God is faithful to his word and all of Israel's hopes and all of the world's hopes and all of our hopes hang on that one truth that God is faithful to his word. And when we cast ourselves upon his mercies, he comes through. He is there for us. Daniel makes an appeal to the mercy of God. And after he confesses and makes his appeal, the angel Gabriel shows up. And in verse 22, here's what the angel Gabriel says to Daniel. Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. Meaning God answered, and I've come to give you God's answer. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So he goes on to share this really confusing, really perplexing, crazy vision about the future. Now, we're not going to get into it. You can go read it yourself and think about what it means. It's it's very complex. But the point of that vision is to show Daniel and to show Israelites living in exile under persecution that things are going to get better and things are going to get worse. And things are going to get better And then things are going to get worse. And then things are going to get better. And that's sort of the story of the world, that that things will get better and things will get worse. Things will get better and things will get worse. What's going to change about you? What's going to change about us? we're not trying to get to the other side of this and then everything will be perfect. If we're still the same old people, then we've learned nothing and God has not transformed us. What would it look like for us to cast ourselves upon God's mercy to confess that he is the one who controls our destiny? I mean, if, if, if exile has taught anything to the Israelites, it's that they are not in control of their destiny. But it's also taught them that Babylon is not in control of their destiny. And that's a lesson for us too. We are not in control of our destiny, but the world we live in is not in control of our destiny either. God is the only one because when we confess, God with his mercy brings us back into the family. Jesus is the mercy of God made flesh and come into the world to invite all exiles, you and me, back into the family of God, into a transformative, restored, healing relationship with the God who made us. Jesus is the mercy of God come running to broken humanity to make us right. And to experience it for ourselves, we have to be a people of confession. A people of confession like Daniel. Now, when I say confession, I... I do and I don't mean what we would call corporate confession. So many of you were raised in church traditions where confession was a regular uh, occurrence in gathered worship. We obviously do not practice that on a regular basis here at our contemporary service. We do at our nine o'clock traditional service. Um, Some of you were raised in traditions where confession meant something else entirely. And some of you were raised in traditions where there was no confessional element. And then some of you don't know what I'm talking about because you haven't been in church at all. That's totally fine. I was raised in a a church tradition that did not use confession ever in worship or otherwise. We never talked about confession. And so as I came to like corporate confession as an adult, I found it incredibly beautiful and compelling that we could gather together and we could name on behalf of each other. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We all need God. But when I say confession, I don't just mean the acts that we do collectively to confess and worship. I also just mean that we are a confessing people, that we live in a posture of confessing that we are not God and that we need God. Confession is resist- resistance against the promise that we are in control of our own destiny. It reminds us that he is God and that we are not. It reminds us to be exactly human-sized and to not try to be God-sized wherever we are. We confess on a regular basis to remind ourselves that we are not God, that we need him. Uh, One of my favorite movies of all time is The Shawshank Redemption. And um, I feel like The Shawshank Redemption is on some channel of your television at any day of the week at any time. So you've probably seen bits and pieces of it, even if you've not seen it. But uh, one of the one of the main characters is Red, who's a prisoner, who's played by Morgan Freeman. He becomes good friends with Andy Dufresne, who is the main character, and and. Uh, Red has uh, come up for parole a few different times. And the first two times in the, in the movie, he comes up for parole. He sits before this parole board and they ask him, you know, are you a reformed man? Why should we let you live on the outside? And the first two times, Red is all excited. and He's like, oh, I'm a changed man. I'm, I'm ready to live better. I'm, I'm a good man. And, and both times they reject him. And then as the movie goes on, you get to know Red, and you see he actually is a pretty great, great guy with, just like all of us, with all kinds of warts. And then he comes up for his third parole hearing, and they ask him the same question, you know, are you, are you rehabilitated? Are you reformed? Uh, and he, after a very colorful exchange, um, which I will not repeat, uh, he then goes on to say this, there's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, not because you think I should, but I look back on the way I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed a terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense into him, to tell him the way things are, but I can't. That kid is long gone, and this old man is all that's left. And that time, they let him out on parole. Why? because he didn't come with a posture of, oh yeah, I'm good, let's get this over with. He says, I've come to terms with who I am and what I've done. See, confession is not putting on a face before God and coming and saying, God, we're all better. We're not trying to convince God that we're good now. Confession is the courage to admit that we'll never be better on our own. That we'll never be better on our own. Theologian Scott McKnight said that too many people think repenting means feeling terrible about something something someone has done. Feeling bad is fine and it often accompanies repentance, but repentance is not so much about what we feel, but the twofold prong of owning up to our own injustices and failures to love and starting all over by living justly and lovingly. It's not about a guilt trip or shame. It's not about making you feel bad. It's about owning up to the fact that we need something that's not within us, that we need to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from any identity that we've given ourselves, turn away from any identity that others have given us, but instead to turn to the identity that we have in Christ because of what he's done for us right? Daniel's confession wasn't just about getting back to normal. It was getting back on mission. It was getting back to who God had made them to be. It was getting back to who they were supposed to be in light of what God had done for them, right? There's something God wants to do in you that will prepare you for what's next, If you just want to get out of the mess without finding the meaning in the middle of the mess, you'll just walk right into the next one as the same person. I mean, imagine like waves coming into the ocean, right? Like it's just one wave after another. And if one doesn't get you, the next one will unless something changes in us. Let's let's learn to throw ourselves upon God's mercy and ask him to transform us no matter what we're going through so that we're able to walk with him in the good days and the bad, to be faithful to him no matter what we find ourselves facing. The question I want to leave you with is what do you need to get out of the way for God to do what's next? I'm going to invite the band to come back up And the band's gonna lead us in our song after we spend some time in confession. Again, we don't normally practice confession in contemporary worship. Um, But this morning, I just wanna give you some space uh, to respond, and so what I'll do is I'll lead us in some questions, in some unison responses, and I'll give you some assurance that things are not, that our brokenness is not the end of the story. But the thing is, we live in a world where it's easy to cast blame on someone else for our problems. And it's harder to look inward. It's harder to look inward. But I love in the book of Daniel, Daniel never blames the Babylonians. He never blames God. He looks inward. He looks at the brokenness of God's people. And he says, God, I cannot control what the Babylonians do. I can only control what I do. And he casts himself upon God's mercy. Let's cast ourselves upon God's mercy in confession. So I have questions and I invite you to respond. How have you ignored God in pursuit of power or pleasure? Please join me. God, we have not listened to your voice or your instructions. What we have heard, we have ignored. What we have understood, we have rebelled against. We need you, even though we act as if we do not. You are greatly loved. How have you mistreated others? How have you mistreated others in the pursuit of pleasure or power. Please join me. You call us to be a living, breathing example of your grace and mercy. But we so often act wickedly and willingly mistreat others for our own gain. We have done wrong by viewing other humans with contempt, anger, and selfishness even though you sacrificed your son to deal with that brokenness in us. And you are greatly loved. How have you neglected the needs of neighbors in pursuit of power or pleasure? We have turned aside when we have seen others in need, those who are like us and those who are unlike us. Forgive us the treachery that we have done and the healing we have left undone. As we have used the words of Daniel 9 to confess our sins and our need for God, one more time, hear the promise, the beautiful words of the angel Gabriel to Daniel and the people of Israel. You are greatly loved. No matter what you've done, you are greatly loved by God. Amen.